Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, how the jazz craze affected Ireland and what life was like in 1932, why Irish ring forts were built and what we can learn about our past from them, and to end the show, St Paul's Churchyard in London and how it became for a time the centre of the English literary world. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about life in medieval Dublin and the archaeological digs around the city that are changing how we understand it. And if you want to listen back to that or to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a year of glory and gold, 1932, Ireland's Jazz Age. The 1930s in Ireland is often remembered as a bleak period of economic stagnation and unemployment. But 1932, hailed by the Irish press as a new era, was an early glimmer of the modernity that Ireland would later reach. The soundtrack scoring all this change was the jazz craze, loosening the conservative moral order of the time. And a new book provides an energetic biography of a bright year in Ireland's history, combining deep archival research with spirited storytelling by one of Ireland's best-loved social historians. The book is called A Year of Glory and Gold, 1932, Ireland's Jazz Age. It's published in hardback by Guild Books. The author is Kevin C. Kearns. And Kevin, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, can we begin with the concept behind the book? Why did you decide to tell the story of a single year in Irish history? It was purely by accident. I was back in uh, 2017 or 18, I was looking through the Irish newspaper archives, combing for some subject that had nothing to do with this. But as I was uh, going through the 30s, which, as you say, uh, just has a rightful perception as a a pretty gloomy decade, I uh, got to 1932 and started coming across some things that surprised me. Before long, it just shined through as a paradox, and nothing gloomy about it. In fact, to the contrary, it just some some of the most wondrous, exciting uh, events uh, in the year in Irish history that I know, and I've been studying it and writing about it for 40 years, and I thought, this is really something. The catalyst, of course, was the Jazz Age. At that period in the early 30s, uh, the Roaring Twenties was waning in America, but it was uh, just starting to reach full flower in Ireland because it just all happened to coincide with the perfection, really, of the gramophone and the cinema which right around 1929 uh, to 1930-31 um, made the, the, the tra- transition from the talkies up to uh, the real sound where they could get uh, music as well. So it was no longer silence. It was talkies and good talkies. And I must add, uh, there were quite a few Irish immigrants who had gone to Ireland for better life who were returning in the early 30s because they found that conditions were far more desperate during this uh, uh, depressive area than in Ireland. Uh, people in, in the States 
were blocks long waiting for a crust of bread and a, 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 a bit of soup. Um, and there was real starvation. Sleep, tens of thousands sleeping rough in the streets. Now, things back in Ireland were, were difficult and hungry, but they weren't starving. So they wanted to get back home if they could put together the wherewithal and relatives and all, you know, would help them. But when they got back to Ireland in the early 30s, they brought with them the love of jazz already, the music, the dance, the, uh, uh, the culture, um, some records, a gramophone record. They brought back the spirit and love of jazz. And it simply uh, was infectious in, in Ireland, just an unbridled enthusiasm for, for this. could be anything from in a barn to a house. They weren't the fancy dance halls of New York, but yet to keep in mind uh, this, this sense of catalyst was just, this is, it, it is, it started to be sort of America's roaring 20s Irish style, uh, you know, much more modest, but the, but the dance halls were in virtually every county. Some people will ask me, well, was it centered in Dublin like everything else? Actually, no. Because in Dublin, they could control the dance halls. But around the country, most of these, probably 80, 90 percent, were unlicensed. And nobody, the local authorities and the counties and the Garda couldn't, couldn't control them. There was no, the priests couldn't control them. So if they closed one down for a night, it just popped up somewhere else. So the, the jazz age was throughout all of the counties, it really started to transform uh, the old conventional, very conservative Irish society, and I will tell you why in very simple terms, the flappers. The flappers were the symbols and icons the, uh, of the jazz age. And by the way, the newspapers, Irish newspapers, quickly began calling it the jazz craze, which is really the best term for it, uh, the term uh, flappers is many theories. <laughs> my, my favorite, it comes from the little, little chicks that just got their wings. They're kind of flapping, trying to fly. And that's, that's where the term flappers fits. But these were young, uh, impassioned uh, 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 women uh, who just loved uh, jazz, as I write up. Uh, they pitched their pantaloons, their corsets, started dancing, gyrating wildly, dancing the Charleston, the shimmy, the shag. A few of these dances involved hopping forwards and backwards, slapping their rump. Well, this horrified a conventional proper Irish society. It was by the moralists in the church. It was labeled condemned devil's music, the music of savages, paganistic. Of course, to the young people, was exhilarating. It was definitely perceived as a threat to society and church. It was the most exciting period, I think, that, that Ireland has ever experienced. The flappers flaunted their wild lifestyle and sort of mocked the old ways. The more outlandish and shocking it was, the better they liked it. They smoked, drank, drove cars, talked of sex a little bit, but they were pleasure-seeking and daring. And so uh, it just exhilarated Ireland. They went to air shows, car races, um, and big ones. There were car races in Phoenix Park at that time with, uh, I mean, race cars coming from France and Belgium. They could get 70,000 people, and the flappers just went there in droves and stood at the most dangerous curves because it was the most exciting. Anything that was exciting or thrilling and outraged decent society, they loved it. It was 
inspirational. And so Ireland's, to me, as I studied this, 1932, it just lit up like a light bulb, and I thought, oh my gosh, this this is not the Ireland I've ever ever come across at all. And I'm 83 years old, and again, I've been I have writing about Ireland since I was in my 40s and 50s, and I've never come across this. You know what I kind of wondered? Why this had never been told before? I know that the reason was nobody ever, it ever occurred to them to knit together all of these items. And here's what I'm talking about. During the same 12-month period, this happened to be the, the, the period of the, of the new talkies in Ireland, which were just a mania. The uh, Irish, first Irish sweeps, which right now in history, I say Irish sweeps aren't for, weren't very exciting, but remember, 1932 is almost a century ago. And there was one trial sweep in 1931, but it was a 1932 sweep that they, the saying was, it put Ireland on the map, and it did. It reached uh, over 100 countries, 8 million uh, tickets. That's 8 million sounds like nothing today, but a century ago. And when, when Draw Day came around, around the world for the 1932... Irish sweepstakes made the headlines on newspapers around the world because in all these countries, there were people who were holding a ticket, each one dreaming, hoping, praying that they would get a telegram telling them that they had won and that their life had changed, had become a miracle. Also, one thing that I'm almost sure has not been really written about is the gold rush. It not not like the the Klondike, but with every bit as much frenzy. There was a real gold fever. I explain in my book what brought it about. It, but it was extremely exciting on its own. And this was the uh, same time as the election in 1932. So exactly the same time. It was during the final stages of the election that uh, the gold rush was finally uh, triggered, and the first. Uh, I had put in a paper by one of the uh, uh, gold dealers that the price of gold had suddenly soared in value from 21 shillings up to 28. But if it were converted to notes, the notes were so valuable. So people started to cash in on it, looking everywhere, high and low, for any gold items that they had that they could cash in so instead, of, it was at 21 shillings fixed, see, for a long time. So all of a sudden, you can imagine, instead of 21, it's 27 or 28. Well, it, the country, everybody was like, it, not only were they looking in their house for, for sovereigns, the gold sovereign, but they were looking for jewelry, items, metals. In fact, believe it or not, gold teeth. Were old grandpa's gold keys that had been stuck in a drawer. Oh, those were treasures. They could cash those in for notes. What I really loved, though, about the gold rush, they could send a gold teeth or a gold medal they had won through the post, and then it would reach a gold dealer. The gold dealer the next day would have uh, the notes uh, in the post going back to them. So somebody on the fringe of Western Ireland could, could have us a gold tooth or two, put it in the post to, to Dublin, no insurance, I mean, complete trust, and the next day they, or next day or two, they, they get the, it was, uh, I had so much fun researching and writing this book, honestly. When I knitted it all together, I, I was just delighted, and not to mention things that were never expected. Amelia Earhart just happened in 1932 land, emergency landing, crossing the Atlantic, she was just about to run out of petrol and uh, go down in, at sea, and she just saw the west coast of Ireland was able to land in a field, and of course, Ireland again was in world headlines, and I, I mean, uh, she just praised Ireland, and, and everybody thought, what a wonderful story. Amelia Earhart, about to go down the Atlantic, arrives on the, in a field in Ireland. I mean, this is a, a, a great, like a great novel. All these things came together. And uh, just as I'd be writing or putting together the research 
It just it just happened. It was you know the way I think of it that I put here honestly at eighty age eighty three and having written Ireland for forty or fifty years, it's like a little reward for me. Good luck that I happened upon nineteen thirty two in this wonderful exhilarating year. So it was, and then then you've got the Olympics. Now, not just any Olympics. In 1932, the Ireland could only send, afford to send, 14 athletes. Well, and this is to California, by the way, to Los Angeles, to a new the Coliseum that was built. Other countries like Britain, France, Sweden were sending Olympic teams of 150 to 250 athletes, superbly trained. Best facilities. Ireland had 14, and of the 14 Olympics, they accomplished something that would have been beyond the imagination of a good fiction writer. Those 14 athletes won two gold medals. There was no expectation of Ireland winning any medals. The, the papers even said that. They said, well, our lads will, 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 will make a good show for us. But nothing about maybe they'll win a bronze or no two gold medals in a period of five minutes. And you wonder how is that possible? Well, you read about it. It, it, These things are quite, are really quite extraordinary. Um, It's never been matched. Uh, Ireland, I mean, has had some gold medals, but not not by two people with within a period of five minutes. It actually goes down in history as uh, one of the most uh, uh, exciting Olympics ever held. So 1932, I tried to weave all of this together. And then there's the story of Jack Doyle, the boxer, whose career was a, a, a sad one ultimately. But he was headlines. He was the biggest world uh, sports news uh, for a while uh, when Jack Doyle hit the scene. It, it was absolutely destined to become the world champion, except it didn't quite work out that way. That's a chapter in itself also. So I've, I've tried to put all of this together to write a book that I wanted to be exciting, uh, exhilarating, and surprising. I've done my best. <laughs> I'll put it that way. No, you definitely did. And uh, some parts of the story of 1932 are well known. The election of, of Eamon de Valera and the coming to power of Fianna Fáil. We have the Eucharistic Congress as well. But then there's other elements that, you know, are less well known. So you have the Talton Games, Ireland's own sporting Olympiad. And you have things like the first sweepstakes. Yes. I, I write from the ground, from the ground up. Like you mentioned, the Eucharistic Congress. Well, good grief, that's been written, but, but not, not from the viewpoint that I write about. Uh, and, you know, fascinating stuff about cinema as well. And, you know, I was reading about Frankenstein coming to theatres and picture houses. And, you know, there was a great amount of activity in that area as well. Oh, there, well, picture houses were, were everything from the, very, from the very modest, you know, neighbourhood all the way through the uh, metropole and... Uh, uh, which is which you know was just gleaming and glossy. They was all lit up on O'Connell Street and all. But once again, by for me, pure luck. Two of the most um, historic, exciting films came: Tarzan, the Ape Man, and Frankenstein. Both happened to come out in 1932, and of course, around the world, they were smash hits. But in Ireland, uh, uh, the movie Frankenstein became a, a very controversial film, uh, it, uh, a, a social controversial film. It, it was to be condemned at first, but then the uh, owners of a couple theaters got together and wrote a, a lucid literary uh, letter to the censors, and the censors approved it. Now, here's the part I love. It was condemned in Belfast. They opened Frankenstein in Belfast, at, at a theater and closed it down in four days and wouldn't open it again. So people from the north were swarming down to Dublin where liberated Dublin was allowing Frankenstein to show. The, the theater of the Corinthian, I think, sold 50,000 patrons in, in the first 
months or six weeks. So every, they'd line up, you know, halfway out of the out out of Dublin to see Frankenstein. Many of them were, and that was the social talk of the season. Also, everybody was. Some were frightened. Some were. Uh, it, it was uh, all of this over over overlaps. Um, and then Tarzan was just a thrill. Maureen O'Sullivan was co-starring in it, but the first Tarzan uh, was exciting throughout the world, wherever it showed. And they'd go back and see it time and time again. Uh, so any, if any two films were, were, that I would hope would appear in that year, in both in 1932, and had a great impact uh, on the Irish and finally, Kevin, I think this is a book that you had a huge amount of fun researching and writing. Yes, it, it was uh, it, it was it was the most exciting research that I've ever done, and it inspired my uh, my writing. Uh, even though I'm down to the end, of, pretty close to the end of my writing uh, uh, career, I hope people like it. You know, I do. I, I've been. Uh, very, very honoured to be on your on your programme. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show tonight and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much and I, I appreciate your kindness in inviting me. The book is called A Year of Glory and Gold, 1932, Ireland's Jazz Age. It's published in hardback by Gill Books, the author Kevin C. Cairns, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. During the early medieval period, around 45,000 Irish ring forts were constructed and a new edition of a book, first published in 1997, examines all aspects of Irish ring forts, their shape, their size, their date, their function, with special attention to national distribution patterns. The book is called The Irish Ring Fort. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press and I'm delighted to welcome the author Matthew Stout to the show tonight. Matthew, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. It's great. Talk about ring forts. So tell me, first of all, what exactly is a ring fort? Well, most people know ring forts uh, in their country. They're either uh, called raths or cashels or cahers or dune, but they are, uh, they are circular spaces enclosed by a bank and you dig a ditch and you throw the dirt up and that forms the bank and in one fell swoop you get a, an enclosed space of about 100 feet in diameter and that's... You build your houses in there and it gives you a safe yard for um, basically for running the cattle economy, running the cattle farm. So there were kind of, what, homestead type monuments in a way? Well, they are, they, are, they are farms. They are single family farms. That's the most important thing. But because it was somewhat of a lawless era, you needed to have a place where you could have your cattle protected in night or in times of of turmoil. So that's so it, it suited the needs of this uh, cattle-rearing population. It's very much uh, sort of base and superstructure, if you like. You know, that the, the, the monument type suited the needs of the people and the needs of the economy. So what shape would they have been? Oh, circular. How, circular. And circular, how, and yes. how And how big? Well, like I say, they're about, they're about 100 feet in diameter, about 30 meters in diameter. They're, they're small, but because most of the fields in Ireland are square or rectangular, they stand out. And it's probably the fact that they, they were so different is what's attracted people to think of them as being otherworldly. Uh, when we didn't know what date they were, people associated, of course, they associated them with the uh, fairies. And that's where a lot of the mythology kind of... Oh, absolutely, yes. And of course, that's how most people know them. And that's why so many of them survive, is because people respected them and f- sometimes even feared them. Because, and the names Fairy Forts Fairy so Forts is the, most, is the most common uh, term people use for them. And you've been able to map them against the landscape and the geography to see exactly where they were and kind of see what kind of patterns you can find. Oh, yes, I have to say that my study was very much not about the fairies. It was about the reality of the situation. Uh, I had access to the the first nationwide, or shall I say, island-wide archaeological surveys. And we are very certain now that the, well, actually the number is closer to 47,000 now. But uh, it was that, it was the access to those new archaeological surveys that made it possible for me to do my work. And then because I had access to so much material, I was able to try to find 
out how they were, I tried to find out how they were distributed and maybe say something about what that distribution means. And what do you think it does mean? Were you able to assess kind of maybe which parts of the, the, the islands were, were more productive in terms of the economy or stronger in terms of the society? You get a sense into, in a way, the kind of the world where these men and women lived. Oh, absolutely. The, the distribution of ring forts is a guide to the distribution of the population. And that guide is densest in, in the good grass growing areas of Ireland. The only exception I sp- route to that rule, I suppose, would be Linster, and there's maybe a, couple, a few different reasons for that. But because they were uh, cattle farmers, they they were on good grasslands, and that's and that's the distribution that ring forts uh, mirror. And the other thing then is that there are different kinds of ring forts. There's, if you like, a hierarchy of ring forts. There are double banked ring forts and single banked ring forts, and large ones and small ones, and they they speak about a uh, hierarchical society. And so we begin to, or rather I should say, I began to uh, associate different kinds of ring forts with different kinds of people in early medieval society. That's, I think, if there's such a thing as a breakthrough, I think that's what the breakthrough was in the ring fort book. Now, houses and buildings have been around for like many, many centuries, but perhaps these ring forts didn't last as long as modern dwelling structures have that it might only really have been maybe for a three-century period. Oh, yes. Well, that's one of the things we're even more certain of now that we were 25 years ago is that the the dating of Ring Fort is... Some people argued that they were they went back to the Bronze Age. Some people suggested they might have gone to the 1700s, but they are very much a uh, 600, 850 sort of a time frame uh, sort of pre-Viking Ireland and uh, it's that's that's the society that wrote early Irish laws where the church prospered and so the ring forts and the farmers that live within them are very much part of that dynamic economy. I always say that you couldn't have the you couldn't have the Book of Kells or the Yardar Chalice without the people living within ring forts. And why did they die out then? Like why did they become obsolete? Well when uh, the Vikings arrived. You can't blame everything on the Vikings, but I do like to blame a lot on them. They they created uh, an an urban economy. They shifted the uh, the shift towards uh, a, a slave economy. The shift towards a uh, tillage economy meant that ring forts were no longer uh, as important or as, as necessary. And it's one of the things that. Even though some sometimes the explanations might seem inadequate, the archaeological reality is that that's what happened. That that after the Vikings arrived, ring forts fall out of use. And was the real benefit of them the fact that if you had a cattle-based economy, that this was a good way of protecting them? Absolutely, that's that's what it's all about. They are not impenetrable sites. They're not uh, fortifications. But they're, they're safe yards. They, they, you have a, a, a bank, you have a palisade on top of the bank, you have a strong gate uh, that, you know, that protects entry, entry into the site. And so they served the purpose. They served the purpose. As long as cattle was king, the ring fort was the, uh, the, the, the house or the dwelling of choice. And fascinating sources because you don't just have the archaeological evidence, you also have uh, them being mentioned in some of the, the, the early sources from this period. Well, early Irish history is a peculiar sort of an animal because we don't, we don't have much narrative history about ring forts. I think there's probably only five ring forts ever mentioned in the annals. But we have this, inc- we have this incredible uh, a body of early Irish law and early Irish law is so detailed and so obsessed with status that the the minute of society is described because people of different uh, uh, status had to have certain things. And so a king had to have a ring fort of two banks or you really couldn't call him a king. And the, uh, the, 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 the poorer sort of landless farmers had to have uh, a small ring fort to protect their, their the cattle which they might have borrowed from a king, and so it it leads to uh, it leads to an understanding of how different individuals that are described in the early Irish law actually were uh, peopled across the landscape, and uh, so it gives 
where there is a lack of historical information about the ring forts themselves, we, we know a lot about the people that live within them. And through sort of a combination of distribution studies and statistical analysis, you end up with being able to say, well, that's where a king lived. That's where a small farmer lived. That's where uh, uh, an important maybe, uh, person perhaps involved in, in interterritorial disputes lived. It's, 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 it sort of fleshes out the, uh, the archaeology because the, the, history, the actual narrative history was lacking. So why and when did the mythology around fairies develop then? Because it, it became such an important part of, of the folklore that, you know, if someone, you know, just touched or disturbed one of these forts and then got sick, well, that was because of yes. the fairies. And all, or, our, all our life, we were, uh, well, my wife and I were surveying sites and people were worried for us because we had to clear the site to survey them. But we was, we always said we were on the site of the fairies and it was okay. But the the... The, they fell out of use and they were remarkably, markedly different than the uh, field systems that developed in the Anglo-Norman period. And the very first haunted ring fort is described by Gerolus Cambrensis in 1185. So that's, that's how long ago people didn't understand what a ring fort was and that's how long ago people associated it with the supernatural. And then the, that just, that just uh, grew and... It's all there in the Irish folklore survey. You can read about all all the ring forts and how they're inhabited by leprechauns or giant rabbits, and there's gold in them and all kinds of things like that. But mainly, people were were told not to disturb them. And as you say, people worried for your safety as you yeah. were doing your. Oh, they did. They did. Research. They were concerned about us. And why do you think it was so powerful over the centuries? You know, is it just that any time we have. Uh, monuments that aren't really understood, whether it's Stonehenge or whatever, that there is always some kind of deeper meaning attached to them. Well, that's that's it. I mean, the 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 ignorance about their true true function is just it just becomes a playground for people. It became <laughs> it be, even it, even uncertainty about their date became a playground for historians and archaeologists. You could ascribe a ring fort to any period if you didn't know what period they were. But uh, and the same thing was done in in the population, and uh, it's just trying to explain something that doesn't that that doesn't make sense, or that that is clearly not of of our world. So, if people wanted to visit a ring fort, what should they do? Well, there are wonderful archaeological surveys. The the archaeology.ie uh, gives you the location of every ring fort in Ireland. And like I say, 47,000 of them. Uh, you can look up those sites. You can ask the farmer if you can visit. Most farmers are very happy to let you look at sites. And then there, is a, there are very few examples. They're owned by the state. There are some uh, at, at Craig and Owen and the Ferry Carrig Heritage Park. There are replicas of ring forts where you get an idea of the kind of round houses and structures that you would have found inside of them originally. In the west of Ireland, they're made of stone, and you could go visit Cahar Cahar Connell. They're everywhere, and uh, the, the archaeology.ie for uh, people in the in, for the twenty six counties is the best guide to where they are. And as you say, they do provide this incredible insight into economy, society, life in in this early medieval period. Well, absolutely, i i think I think before I did this, uh, before I published this book. We had 45,000 sites and we didn't really understand how they worked together or how they related to churches or how they related to kingship. And when you, when you put all that together, you really get an understanding of ordinary, ordinary people and they're always the hardest people to understand in any historical period because the, the sources tell you about the princes and the kings and the priests but most people in those days were were uh, not artists, but or, or priests or clergymen uh, or kings. They were ordinary farmers, and and that's what I wanted to get at. It's it's the idea that um, you know sometimes you have to go beyond what the sources are telling you and trying to push out uh, uh, our understanding. And so, so I used, as I say, distribution analysis, st- statistics, all kinds of things, so I could try to get an understanding of what ordinary people's life was like. 
Well, it's a fascinating study. It's called The Irish Ring Fort. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Matthew Stout. And Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, to end the show tonight, we're going to bring you the extraordinary story of St. Paul's Churchyard, the area of London that was a centre of social and intellectual life for more than a millennium. St. Paul's Cathedral stands at the heart of London, an enduring symbol of the city, less well known as the neighbourhood at its base that hummed with life for over a thousand years, becoming a theatre for debate and protest, knowledge and gossip. And its story has been told in a new book, and it brings to life the story of this remarkable community and how it came to an abrupt end with the Blitz. The book is called In the Shadow of St. Paul's Cathedral, The Churchyard That Shaped London. It's published in paperback by Yale University Press. The author is Margaret Wills. And Margaret, you're very welcome to the show. Hello. So tell us what the book is about. It's not a history of St. Paul's Cathedral. It's a history of the neighbourhood, the community, the churchyard, and this this remarkable community and how it's shaped London for pretty much a thousand years. Absolutely. Uh, well, even more than that, in a way. Um, uh, and it was, it, it was the area that, that, that sort of sprang up around the cathedral. The cathedral was actually established in 604. Uh, and, but very soon afterwards, uh, the area around became rather special to it. It doesn't look like a, 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 an ordinary... Uh, dismiss the idea of uh, a, an ordinary churchyard, you know, with the lich gate and the yew trees and the gravestones. This was a sort of working area around around the cathedral. Uh, and it started off, obviously, uh, as a religious area, although there were some remarkably irreligious things happened. But uh, and then in time, it, it became established as the centre for the book trade. And you begin the story in your acknowledgments with uh, the first time you visited it in 1953. You think uh, the year of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. That's right. Long time ago, um, my father took me um, up to. I think he was wanting to take photographs of the uh, city churches, which of the ones that had survived the blitz or all the damage in the war, and they were being lit up for the Queen's coronation. And so he took me with him during the day, and I can just, I can still see it to this day. I, I still got this feeling about it. It was utter devastation. And one of the things that haunts me now is that yeah. almost within my lifetime, it would have been a very different place, and my parents would have known it. Unfortunately, I had never asked them uh, before they died uh, what it must have been like, in, uh, even in the 20th century before the uh, Second World War. So, Margaret, how did this area, this community, become so so significant with all of these debates, bookstores? Uh, you talk about the luxury shopping which took place, uh, what you can reconstruct by looking at the trade cards, the fact that you had these uh, dramatic debates going on as well. Even down to 1216 when uh, a French nobleman came uh, and it looked like he was going to become the King of England. Actually, he was a French prince and he very nearly, he very nearly became the King of England had he not had, had had King John, who was so unpopular that, uh, that that people wanted to put Prince Louis on the throne, uh, had had they had he not died, and and people thought, well, I suppose we've got his successor. Um, uh, he he might well have been the uh, you know a French French prince on the throne of England, and who knows what would have happened then. Um, I suppose it's because it's uh, perhaps it, it, it the key to it is that it's. Right in the centre centre of London, um, the it's, it's on the west side of the city, but already very early on, the suburbs to the west were beginning to open up. So it, it's the link between the civic city and the royal city, which is Westminster, uh, and 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 of course it was the centre of the ecclesiastical centre. So I suppose that may be the the key to it. And tell us about maybe some of the debates that took place at Paul's Cross and uh, the fact that it did become the centre for, you know, controversies, but also major discussions of politics and religion and other things. Maybe that, it, that earlier, um, just outside the, actually the, city, the, uh, the cathedral uh, precinct, but just outside it, there was a traditionally in Anglo-Saxon times, it was where uh, the, the folk of the city, i.e., 
people with a certain amount of money, all men, I suspect, uh, were gathered together uh, three times a year and on, on other occasions to sort of kind of work out the government of the city. And that was called a folk mood. Uh, and when that sort of declined and the population grew, grew much greater, uh, just at the same time, it was sort of taken in, that area was taken into the precinct and St. Paul's Cross was built, which was a pulpit. And it became rather like uh, in now in London, a speaker's corner or uh, um, other places where, where people just get up and speak. Uh, but it, of course, it was very much controlled by the, it was within the precinct. Thomas Carlyle called it the, the equivalent of the Times newspaper of the Middle Ages. And people expected the powers that be and the powers that not be, i.e. the protesters, knew that this was a really good place to, 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 to make their, their thoughts known and to get the crowd on their side. So that's why it became such a, an important place. And it's even it was even a place where William Shakespeare visited, uh, sometimes looking for inspiration. Well, he certainly so the cross churchyard. So the the churchyard is made up of was made up in the Middle Ages of a, the, the cathedral was huge, uh, but so but there were bit, bits uh, there were sort of spaces round it, and the cross churchyard was one of them, the one on the northeast. Uh, and Shakespeare certainly went to look at uh, to visit the. Various bookshops that had opened up uh, with the uh, with the uh, uh, creation uh, with the invention of printing and the, the development of the book trade, and uh, the Cross Churchyard was one of the ones was was particularly a place that the uh, uh, booksellers wanted to be because it was an absolute key place. Their favourite was was to, to get to have a have a, a shop between the buttresses of the cathedral, uh, causing mayhem, of course, with their with their chimneys, so it, I, I, I show a picture in the book of of the, these chimneys belching forth uh, uh, as uh, next to the cathedral with with uh, somebody preaching at St Paul's Cross. Tell me about the impact then of the Great Fire of London in 1666. What uh, that seems to have changed uh, uh, its its future dramatically as well. Well, of course, it changed every, its future all, all kinds of all, all over the city. But it, but it really did devastate um, the uh, the, ch- the churchyard because it started in Pudding Lane, which is quite a long way away. It's at the uh, it's in the north side of uh, uh, London Bridge, but there were incredibly strong winds, so it swept across. Uh, and people, sort of seeing it coming, thought, well, one place that would be safe for our, our books, the booksellers who were all gathered there, but, uh, one place would be safe. We'll put them in the crypt of Paul's Cathedral and also in various other churches and halls around. But, uh, but they, they were completely wrong and the, uh, the, because the cathedral just went up like a, a bonfire with all this paper in its basement. So uh, it really, it, it, the book trade was absolutely in tatters. But it, it, it recovered remarkably quickly. Um, just shows what determination will do for you. And and in a way, this also helped it become the centre of the English literary world because the bookshops became hugely important and it became really a centre for, uh, really for literature. Yes, that's right. It did. Uh, so it uh, so originally the bookshops, the booksellers were often importing books from Latin books, books in Latin because that was the international trade and, and publishing books in Latin. And gradually, 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 English titles started appearing. Uh, even during uh, Shakespeare's lifetime, uh, there was a, a real development in the uh, amount of stuff that was, uh, amount of material that was um, available in English. And he, he benefited from that, of course. Whether, whether Ben Johnson was right that he had little Latin and no Greek uh, is debatable, but certainly he, he benefited. And then in the 17th century, uh, with the creation of the Royal Society and other uh, academic institutions, uh, English became very much an international language, especially for science and uh, uh, anything to do with the Royal Society, which was the widest, uh, um, it cast its net very wide as far as uh, 
the knowledge was concerned. And so uh, English did become the, the very important. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and also, of course, the, the market for English books um, widened and widened and widened from um, uh, Great Britain from, uh, and Ireland uh, uh, to, to uh, um, North America and the Caribbean and then even greater than that. But so, so that was that uh, the booksellers really uh, were able to cash in on this and to and to provide a knowledge for a huge market. And as one of your chapters suggests, it was also a place to be seen. That's right. <laughs> it took me a long time to work out the title for that chapter. So when St Paul's Cathedral was rebuilt um, by Sir Christopher Wren, in remarkably fast time, but even faster, the booksellers managed to get their, get back into the churchyard and rebuild their ch- shops and their houses. Um, uh, but people were very curious about this, this first Cathedral to be re, to be built in England um, since the uh, Reformation, uh, and um, so they people wanted to get, were absolutely fascinated. I mean, people like Samuel Pepys in his diary describes you know people all staring at the, watching the the building site, which people still do today, unaccountably, um, and and so it became a real draw for for London uh, and the booksellers. Uh, cottoned onto this, and they produced all kinds of guidebooks and uh, engravings, uh, uh, as well as their, their books, uh, to to to, uh, um, uh, to provide a, a market for these tourists. And then people wanted to be seen promenading, because um, the uh, as I said, it was the centre of London, so it, it formed a link between. Uh, the, uh, the, as I said, the financial side, the uh, the civic side, and the financial side, um, to more to the east, ru- running round to and down Ludgate Hill to Fleet Street and the uh, uh, the shops of West, uh, the West End and um, the Royal City, the Westminster, uh, and so people, the carriage trade went wanted to go and 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 shop in actually uh, the south side as well, actually but all sides of St Paul's. Uh, it was a great shopping centre uh, for, for fashionable uh, clothes and for furniture uh, for furnishing their houses. There were coffee shops so that they could enjoy themselves, and um, and it, it was absolutely like like Oxford Street is. Well, was until quite recently, right, as it still is in in uh, in London. Now, the cathedral itself survived the Blitz, but uh, the, court, the, the churchyard was, was less fortunate. Uh, talk to us about the impact of the Blitz and the bombing. Well, there was, uh, so there was one particular night when, when bombs rained down on Paternoster Row and the churchyard. And um, so the churchyard had become rather more the fashionable place for people to shop. And uh, publishers, ever ever not having so much money as uh, as uh, had retreated more into the into Paternoster Row, which is just to the north of the churchyard, and the, it was packed with wall wall to wall with uh, booksellers, publishers, uh, warehouses, um, printing presses, etc. Uh, and uh, it was utterly destroyed by these bombs on. 29th of December 1941 uh, or 1940, I think. Sorry, uh, and um, it, it totally wiped. It sort of again, just like the Great Fire, uh, the, the the book trade was sort of uh, completely um, had to start again. Really, uh, and I had a particularly uh, sort of sad kind of obituary of the the book trade in the churchyard, which was uh, it was the uh, cemetery of the. Uh, of the of the printed word, uh, and of course, when they rebuilt, they, they never they, they didn't go back into the churchyard, and those that were that did, did survive also left for various other reasons. So the, so London did have a, a centre of publishing from then on in Bloomsbury, but it hasn't anymore. It's all scattered now. Let's go a little bit further back in time because the site was also used for some executions after the gunpowder plot. And, you know, in a way, did that taint the image that some people had of the area? 
That's interesting you ask that, yes. Um, well, most, most executions uh, took place in uh, either at Smithfield uh, uh, and Tyburn. I mean, uh, when, when the uh, Protestant martyrs were, 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 were burnt at, uh, at the stake, they would have been at Smithfield, um, and then uh, hangings were at Tyburn. But um, I think the gunpowder plot, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the results of, of the uh, after the trial, uh, the, the people were so shocked by the, uh, the what had happened with, you know, the king and his entire government could have been wiped out. That um, the sort of it was an example to be to be made. So there were two places where where there were executions. Um, one was in uh, uh, Westminster itself, but by, by Parliament, and the other was St Paul's, and and it was regarded by some people as a really rather sacrilegal, sacrilegious thing to do. Because of course they were hang drawn and quartered, it was a terrible, terrible fate. And like there was also, it's incredible the diverse range of things that that occurred and took place in that area, uh, because you also had things like wrestling matches and you had football <laughs> matches, and so there were these great sporting occasions uh, as well as all of the literary events. There was indeed, and uh, I'm never quite sure, but at one stage in the proceedings, they used to. Have a uh, have a an annual event in the cathedral where they would. Uh, it was rather sort of uh, uh, rather primitive in a way, uh, sort of a a, a, a a deer who had been who had been slain, was sort of carried in into the cathedral as a sort of uh, carried in procession, um, uh, and I, I I suspect that at one stage they even may have liberated uh, deer into the. Into, into the churchyard and had, a, had, had chased it, but I, I'm not sure about that, and I didn't want to inquire too much. But yes, it was it was very much a sort of uh, uh, it was cra- I mean, first of all it was crowded with buildings, so uh, it, it, it had lots of buildings there, and then all these things going on, including people uh, acrobats uh, coming across the uh, across from the uh, the, the dome uh, the uh, cross. Uh, all kinds of events uh, took place there, including public humiliations, which are really rather horrible. Um, uh, uh, so it was the sort of it was the centre of activity, but it was also the it was also a place where there was a a, a, a theatre. Um, uh, the the boy actors at the beginning of the 17th century they had their theatre in in the churchyard itself, and people used to. It used to walk up and down in in the uh, nave of uh, uh, St Paul's, which was a public place rather than an ecclesiastical, uh, showing themselves off with their latest uh, fashions and have listening to gossip. And then they would go into this theatre uh, right by, which is attached to the cathedral, and and watch a play in the afternoon. Well, Margaret, you tell the story so well and you bring that cathedral uh, back to life for all of your readers. So thanks so much for joining us tonight to tell us about it. Well, thank you very much. The book is called In the Shadow of St. Paul's Cathedral, The Churchyard That Shaped London. It's published in paperback by Yale University Press. The author, Margaret Wills. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.